Thank y'all for being here today. We, we went on a date last night, and we went and got some good food in my shorts and flip-flops. Uh, and then woke up this morning and could not wear shorts and flip-flops. So I was a little, <laughs> little disappointed. Um, and so it, the, weather, the weather certainly changed. First, first day kind of spring break. I don't know if you have kids, if they're on spring break. But um, I, I'm assuming that's where some people are today, spring break. But I just want to thank you for being here. We are continuing our series on the road to the cross. And we've been doing 40 days of prayer leading up to Easter. If you check this morning, I've not uploaded the, the day of prayer for today, so I'm sorry. I'll, I'll take ownership of that. It will be up by the end of the day, and we'll have uh, a good focus this week praying Luke 10-2 all week and applying that prayer to a lot of different areas. This morning, uh, we're going to pick up where Pastor Al left off last week. Last week, he talked about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So we saw a couple weeks ago, Jesus in Luke 9, it says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the reason he did that is because he knew that's the city where he would die. He knew that's the city where he was going to be killed and crucified. He knew that's the reason he came to earth. So when he set his face to go to Jerusalem, uh, he's setting his face to the cross. And then last week, Pastor Al said he gets to Jerusalem. He has this triumphal entry. He's the king of a very different kind of kingdom. And now this week, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 starting in verse 7. I'm going to read a little bit so that we can feel the narrative move along, and then we're going to press in and see uh, what the teaching is for this morning. If you don't have a a copy of God's Word, or if you've not gotten one of our Scripture journals, there's a little table in the back. I think we only have a couple copies left, but go get one of those. That's our gift to you. It's got on one side the biblical text, on the other side blank lines, so you can write all in it. Go get one of those. We'd love for you to have one. Follow along with us in Luke chapter 22. Let's read the text, starting in verse 7. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples, and he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, and it is the new covenant in my blood. So this morning, we're going to participate in the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And I don't know if you're like me. I I was raised in a church setting, and so we did the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you were raised in church or if you were raised in a different tradition. Maybe you did it every week. Maybe you just did it three or four times a year. We try to do it once a month. We try to do it on the first Sunday of the month, but we actually moved it up this time so that it would correspond with this passage because this is where the whole thing started. And so... I've always wondered, like, why is this important? Why is the Lord's table important for me? What are we supposed to be 
doing. I, I get that, you know, I was raised, my pastor would read this text or he'd read from one of the other gospels and he would kind of remind us, hey, you know, this bread represents Jesus' body being broken for you. This, this cup represents Jesus' blood being shed for you. So let's remember the gospel, let's rejoice in it. And I get that. But sometimes for me, I would go, okay, so why do we only do this once in a while? Can I just make this part of my quiet time? Like, can I just get bread in the cup and just in the mornings wake up and eat and remember, oh, yes, Jesus, your body, your blood, I need this this morning. But what makes this different? What makes this a different kind of remembrance? Why is the Lord's table important for us to do today? And when we partake of it, what does it do for us? What was Jesus' intention when he told them, do this in remembrance of me? That's the question we're going to be pressing into this morning. So let's pray and then let's dive right in and see what Jesus has to say about the Lord's table. Father, we open your word because we know there's power in it, because we want to hear from you. So would you open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, open our hands to be willing to let go of anything so that we might grab on to you, Lord. Speak to us this morning, God. And as you speak, we pray that we'll know that it's you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Luke, like he does so often in his gospel, and like we'll see he does in Acts, he gives really great details about the timing of things. Luke was a doctor, uh, and I read this week that people think his Greek name was like Lucian, and I'm like, why did we ruin it by calling him Luke? We should have said we're preaching through the gospel of Lucian. That would have just sounded so much cooler. But so Lucian the doctor, Luke the doctor was very detailed. And he gives all throughout his gospel little chronological markers that quite frankly, they told me this in seminary. So I feel like I can say it. They mean nothing to us, right? Because we're like, okay, so this random detail happened. What does that mean for me? But he's trying to tell Theophilus, here's the timing. Here's the timing. Here's the timing. Jesus is going here and then he's going here and then he's doing this and then that. And, and we have another one of those instances right here in Luke chapter 22 because as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he's getting close to dying on the cross. Luke tells us something extremely important. It's Passover. It's Passover. Now, let's back up and try to get a biblical perspective on what this timing means. If you remember way back, I looked it up. <clears throat> we have a recording of this sermon from October 7th. We preached on the Passover. In fact, I think that was me. I preached on the Passover from the book of Exodus. And we've been preaching through the story of God. So that's why we came to Passover. Passover was an incredibly important moment in the history of God's people. So therefore, it was an incredibly important moment in the story of God. See, in the book of Exodus, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And they had grown to this incredibly large number. Pharaoh did not like that they had grown to such a large number, so he put them in this extremely harsh, and it seemed like it just kept getting worse type of slavery. They were in there for 400 years, thinking they were never going to get out. But then Exodus 1 tells us that God heard their cries, remembered the covenant, and he knew. God didn't forget about them when they were in their slavery. So the way he gets them out is he calls Moses, raises up Moses, 80-year-old Moses, and says, you're going to lead the people out. Here's how you're going to do it. You're going to stand up to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him, let my people go. He's going to keep saying, no, 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 no. I'm going to send plagues. Every plague I send is going to be a reminder that I am Lord over everything. Pharaoh is going to hate the plague, so he's going to try to say, okay, you could go, but he really just doesn't like the consequence. He's not confessing that I'm the Lord. He would never do that. 
So I'm going to do all this to try to show you I am Lord of all. And I want you to know that I am the Lord. And I want Egypt to know that I am the Lord. So God sends these plagues. This is happening in Exodus. You can go read about the ten plagues. Well, nine plagues happen. And then finally God says, I've got one more plague. And after this, you will let my people go. He says, I will kill every firstborn son in the land of Egypt. I'm going to send my angel of death to take the life of the firstborn son because you've sinned against me. But he tells his people, Israel, your firstborn does not have to die. Here's how. When I send the angel of death, here's what you're going to do that day. You're going to take a lamb, spotless, unblemished lamb. You're going to sacrifice it. And you're going to take the blood and you're going to wipe it on the doorpost of your house. And you're going to take the meat and you're going to eat all of it. Don't let any of it last until the morning. And when the angel of death comes, he'll see the blood on the doorpost and he will pass over. There's the name, Passover. So when the angel of death sees the blood on the door, he'll know you belong to me, you had faith in me, and he'll pass over your house. You can go read all about this in Exodus 11 and 12 and 13. You can go listen to the sermon on our website. So that's the Passover. This was such a monumental moment that God stops, the writer of Exodus stops and actually gives instructions for how to celebrate this Passover meal every year. Because God says, this is so important. You can't forget how I've saved you out of Egypt. My salvation that I have brought to you out of Egypt is so important that every year you need to recreate this Passover meal. You need to take a lamb again, and you need to sacrifice it again, and you need to eat it again. And this festival, there's actually this tradition, and you can read about it, and historians tell us all about it, and it's in Scripture, that typically the youngest person in the family would ask, even if he knew the answer, he would ask, why are we doing this? They would come to this point of the meal where he would say, all right, Dad, all right, patriarch. And typically these meals were had not just one household, but 10, 20, 30 people. So it would be a big group, and the youngest person would go, why are we doing this? And they would retell the story of the Passover. And they would say, because God's salvation is great, and the Lord is our salvation. And because of the blood of the Lamb, the angel of death passed over and we didn't have to die. We didn't have to lose our firstborn and we were saved out of slavery. So this meal is happening right here in Jesus' life. And Jesus, it's time for the Passover. So Jesus is gonna celebrate with his disciples. He sends his disciples to go find a room. He's very particular about how they find the room, right? Go see, there's gonna be a man carrying a jug of water. Follow him. Don't talk to him, but just follow him. When you get in the house, find the master of the house and then say to him, can we have the upper room? And it'll be ready for you, right? kind of reminiscent of how he finds the colt that he rides into Jerusalem on. We think he does this because right before we had to pass over this as we're trying to do a, uh, an overview of Luke, but Judas has already made up his mind and taken his bribe that he's going to betray Jesus. So Jesus doesn't make it known where he's going to be taking the Passover so that Judas doesn't go rat him out because it's not his time to be betrayed yet. He's got a little bit more work to do. So they go, they find the room, and that's where our story picks up. They arrive in the upper room. They recline to eat. You read that right. They didn't sit. They, they kind of reclined on one arm and had their feet kind of going out behind them. They're reclining at this table. And so that's the setting that we're stepping into in Luke 22. They're celebrating the Passover. They're remembering God's great salvation. And now let's see what Jesus has to say as he, I believe, reinterprets the Passover in light of himself. 
the central point of this entire text is verses 19 and 20. That's the central point. And it's in these verses where he says that this, is, this bread is my body given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So he takes this death of a lamb that they're celebrating and he actually says, we need to stop pointing to the death of the lamb and start pointing to me in my death that I'm about to suffer. So while they are eating a meal that celebrated the death of one lamb that led to salvation all the way back in Exodus 12, Jesus tells them that his own body will be given for them and his own blood will be poured out for them. So yet again, Jesus is highlighting the centrality of his death. So let's look at Passover and Jesus really quick. Passover, God provided a lamb to die in the people's place. So the Passover lamb was a sacrifice, but he was also a substitute. He was a sacrifice because he died. He was a substitute because he died in the people's place. Jesus says that he is our sacrifice because it says his body will be broken and his blood will be poured out. He will die. It says my body will be broken. My blood will be shed. Jesus is the sacrifice. But then he's not just the sacrifice. Jesus is our substitute because he said his body will be given and his blood will be shed for you. So take the full weight of what Passover meant. Thousands of years of celebrating it. All the rules and the regulations. The monumental point in history that this celebrated. The Passover. And when Jesus celebrates the Passover... He all but stands up and says, I am the perfect Passover lamb. I'm the lamb of God, just like John the Baptist said, I'm the lamb of God here to take away the sins of the world. So we've got this Passover setting and here's what Jesus is saying. This bread that we're about to partake of represents my body that's given for you. This this cup that we're about to drink from represents my blood that's poured out for you. The imperfect Passover lamb is being replaced by the perfect lamb of God. That's the work of Jesus on the cross. He's pointing to his work. He's saying, I came with one thing in mind, death. I knew that that awaited me. His whole life was really the road to the cross. He knew that his whole life was pointing to this one moment where he would die on the cross for us. So then we've got to ask, what does his work accomplish? And I think he tells us right here in verse 20. It says, likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, Jesus takes the cup, and this is what he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. There's a word there we don't really use a whole lot, covenant. So here's the situation, Passover, right? Passover was a glorious moment, monumental moment in Israel's history and therefore in the story of God. But as remarkable of a story that it was, it was still lacking. Because after they were delivered out of Egypt, they wander in the desert, they get to the promised land. While they're wandering, while they're in the wilderness, God gives them the law. So as great as the Passover lamb was, that didn't actually fix every problem because in the law, we see that God includes instructions for regular sacrifices, regular sacrifices. Why? Because sin 
happened regularly among the people of God. So it's not like the one Passover sacrifice lasted for the rest of their life. It didn't. They had to offer repeated sacrifices. God gives them detailed instructions. Read the book of Leviticus and you see the the intricate details that God writes that you have to offer certain kind of sacrifices in certain kind of ways and certain times of year. This is what we would call the Old Covenant. You can go read Hebrews chapter 9 is incredibly insightful on the Old Covenant and what that means for us today. And it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9, that according to this arrangement, the gifts and the sacrifices that are offered cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Because you see, in the Old Covenant, everyone did not have access to God's presence. Only the high priest could go in, and even then he could only go in once a year. And even then, when he went in only once a year, he had to offer extensive sacrifices for both himself, because he was imperfect, and he had to offer sacrifices for the whole people of Israel. God's presence was extremely limited in the Old Covenant because God cannot dwell with sin. He is holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. And sin is any sort of rebellion against him and he cannot be in the presence of sin. So God's presence was hard to come by in the Old Testament. So the Old Covenant way of worship was extensive, it was difficult, and it still didn't fix the biggest problems. But in this upper room, Jesus says that his blood is poured out to establish a new covenant, a new covenant. So we have the old covenant that's difficult, but then we have a new covenant that Jesus says is here. So my question, what is this new covenant? Well, Hebrews 10.10 tells us that Christ's sacrifice saves us, quote, once for all. In Hebrews 10.12, it says that Christ, quote, offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. So Jesus did once for all what the old covenant failed to do. He takes away our sin once and for all. So do you see the difference? So we see his work, right? Jesus came to be a sacrifice in our place. So what did that accomplish? Well, he brought the old covenant to the new covenant. The new covenant. I know covenant's not a word we use a lot, But it's in the Bible. That's why I'm trying to use it and explain it. Old covenant, repeated sacrifices, didn't perfect us. It didn't work because you had to keep offering them over and over and over. New covenant, Jesus offers one sacrifice and it is perfect. He takes away our sin once and for all. That's the good news of the new covenant with Jesus. So, So what does that mean for us? What does this new covenant mean for us that our sins are dealt with once and for all? Well, we really cannot overstate how important this new covenant is. Because Jesus dealt with our sins once and for all, we have unmediated access to God. We don't have to wait for once a year. We don't have to wait for a priest to go in on our behalf and make our claims to God or go in for us. If you keep reading in the book of Hebrews, here's what it says. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. I'm going to quote scripture right here. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The new covenant means that 
we can draw near to God in confidence. So, so far, what we've seen in this text, two things. We've seen the work of Jesus, sacrifice in our place. Then we've seen what that work accomplished, unmediated access to God. You can draw near to God. You can have a personal relationship with God. You and God. You don't have to go through anyone else. You don't have to go through me. You don't have to go through Pastor Al. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through. You can have a personal relationship with God. God gives you his Holy Spirit. You can know God. That's what Jesus' work accomplished. He dealt with our sins once and for all. So what does that mean that he dealt with our sins once and for all? I think we've really got to work to apply this truth to our hearts because we have this condemnation complex that works in us. We're so driven to earn things that we apply this concept of what I deserve way too liberally in our life. But because Jesus dealt with our sins once and for all, you have freedom from the looming penalty of sin. You have freedom from the penalty of sin. Here's the good news. Death and condemnation no longer belongs to you. Jesus has dealt with your sin once and for all. He's not the imperfect Passover lamb. He he doesn't need to offer sacrifice over and over again. You don't have to try to figure out the next sacrifice for the next sin you're gonna commit. And when you sin, inevitably, like you have even this morning, you don't have to try to figure out or muster up something good enough to offer to God to appease him for his anger for it. Christ has done it already. God's not mad at you. Some of you came this morning and that's all you need to hear. God's not mad at you. You cannot out-sin the grace of Jesus that he offers you. His death was so perfect. And here's a word as I was praying this week that I don't know that I've ever used this in relation to the cross or the death of Jesus, but his death was so perfectly successful. There's no failure in it. So the sin that keeps coming back in your life or the different sins, I was telling somebody yesterday, I said, we were talking about Bible times and today times, and I said, one thing that's different is uh, we've gotten way more creative with our sin. As, As you find that sinful creativity coming through in your life, there is no sin that you have to figure out a new sacrifice for. You don't have to come and do penance You don't have to come and get saved again. You don't have to come and there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. There's nothing you can do to out-sin how far God goes in the death of Jesus. Nothing. That's the good news of his sacrifice for us, that he deals with it in the new covenant way, once and for all. You have freedom from this penalty of death and condemnation, but you also have freedom from the bondage of sin. Did you know that sin enslaves you? You don't get to partake and then leave. You don't get to keep sin at a distance because sin is birthed in our hearts. So there is no distant interaction with sin. Because sin comes from the love and the affections and the worship of our heart and then flows out of our actions. So when you sin, it gets in you and it messes you up to where you start talking like Paul in Romans 7 and you're like, 
well, there's me and I want to do this, but then there's sin in me that wants to do this. You can't, you, you struggle separating that. But the good news of Jesus is that because he defeated sin, you're no longer a slave. You've got a new master. You've got a new king. I hope you followed that word in the book of Luke. You have a new king over your life. And he's a king that graciously clothes you in his perfection, wraps you in the robes of his righteousness so that you're no longer a slave to sin. But you're now brought in and you're a child of the king, a child of God. So I want to encourage you like Paul encourages the readers in Romans 6, stop submitting to that which is no longer your master. You're free from that. Christ's perfect once for all sacrifice has freed you from the slavery of sin. Uh, another way this impacts us is that you don't have to keep holding the sins of others over their head. You don't have to keep holding the sins of others over their head. If Christ offers them forgiveness, how much more should you offer them forgiveness? Christ bore their punishment for them. And if Christ really did offer this perfect sacrifice for us, that once for all is good, when we fail to forgive others, what we're saying is that his sacrifice was not good for that action that I'm not forgiving. A failure to forgive is to say, Christ's death wasn't good for that. So my forgiveness won't be good for that either. But the good news is that Christ's death was good for that. And every sin that's ever been committed by someone else against you or that's affected you, listen, the web of sin's effects are so confusing and so widespread and so deep that they can seem impossible to untangle. So sometimes someone's sin against you unfairly and unjustly wraps you up in stuff that you go, I, I don't know how I can get out of this. And therefore, I don't know if I can forgive that person. And it can seem like there's no right response to someone who's sinning against you. Like, what do I do? But the good news is that Jesus has forgiven that person. That his, Jesus' death for that person is full and final and complete. So we don't have to expect that person to be perfect. We probably need to have healthy expectations for one another that we're all bad. We're all gonna need forgiveness and we're all gonna need to give forgiveness. Like we talked about this last Sunday, that's kind of like our marriage mantra. We have to expect to forgive each other if our marriage is gonna last until we die. If If we don't expect to forgive each other, then we're expecting each other to be perfect. We'll always be disappointed. There's good news in that Jesus' death is the once for all sacrifice that defeats sin. So trace with me where we've come so far in this sermon, in this text in Luke 22. They're celebrating Passover. Jesus says, here's my work that I came for, to be the sacrifice in your place, the perfect one. And what that did was that he dealt with sin once and for all so that we don't have to try to muster up different sacrifices. We have a perfect relationship with God now. We can draw near to his throne. We can know him. We can hear his voice and his word. We can pray to him. So how does this affect us and the Lord's table today? 
How does this affect us as we come to the Lord's table? Well, first, Jesus invites you to his table, just like he invited the disciples right here in Luke 22. He invites, this is the Lord's table and it's for him to invite. So what are we doing as we come? Well, verses 19 and 20. He took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup. After they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus invites you to take the bread and the cup. So he tells them, do it in remembrance of me. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So when we come to the Lord's table, I believe we're doing three things. First, I believe we're looking back at Jesus' perfect work, his sacrifice in our place. I believe we're looking back on that perfect work that he accomplished for us and we're remembering that we don't have to try to recreate that. We're rejoicing in the fact that he dealt with our sin once and for all. We come to the Lord's table, we're looking back. But then when we come to the Lord's table, we're looking right here in the present and we're looking up to God because we have a new covenant relationship with him. You enjoy unmediated access to God. So when we come to the Lord's table, we're looking up to God and we're going, oh, how sweet is this? Jesus overcame every barrier so that I can have the greatest gift of all, God, you. Romans 5. Paul's going through all these things, rejoicing in the work of Jesus and that he died for us. And then he gets to the end in verse 11. He says, more than that. So more than all these gospel truths that Jesus loved us and he died for us and did all these things, he says, more than that, we rejoice in God. Not God's stuff, not God's works, but God himself. You get God. So we come to the Lord's table, we look back and say, Jesus, thanks for accomplishing this. We look up and we say, God, I get you. What a gift. And then we come to the Lord's table, we look forward. We look forward. Notice what Jesus says in verses 16, 17, and 18. He says two times, he says, I won't eat this again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God in verse 16. And then in verse 18, he says, I won't drink the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is saying, the next time I eat this meal with you will be when this is all done. There's no more sin. There's no more evil. The kingdom of God is fully and finally established. And so every time we eat of it, every time we come to the Lord's table and we take these crackers and we take these little cups of juice, I hope it draws us to the future in hope to know that we have a hope that cannot be shaken. We have a hope that one day he's gonna establish his kingdom in perfection. And that all of our prayers and all of our longings will one day end in a praise to God because he will be the answer to all of them. And one day we'll be sitting around the throne with every tribe, tongue, nation, and people singing, Lord is worthy of our praise. Holy, holy, holy. And one day, follow this theme. We'll sit down to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
we'll sit down at this table with people who have eaten this bread and drink this cup for thousands of years, all believers for all time. People from North and South America, people from Africa, Australia and Asia, people from Europe, people from every century in human history and every century that's still to come. We will sit at a table with them. But we'll sit there with the lamb, the lamb who was slain. And we'll eat a meal of victory, knowing that he finished what he started. So I hope this gives us a picture of every time you see these tables when you come in what we're coming to do. We're coming to look back at the perfect work of Jesus. We're coming to look up at our beautiful relationship with God and we're coming to look forward to the fulfillment of his kingdom. The last thing for us to do though is to personally eat and drink. This is the Lord's table and it's for him to invite. And the good news is that he's invited you The only reason it would be bad news is if you didn't take it for yourself. So we believe this is a celebration I hope we've shown today. This is a celebration for believers who have personally, by faith, tasted the goodness of Christ, whose broken body and shed blood has been applied to their life and he saved them. So if you don't know Christ, here's what you need to hear me say. I'm inviting you to know him for the first time today. And the only reason... I don't think you should come partake of this is if you don't want to come know Jesus. That's the only reason I don't want you to come is if you don't want to know Jesus. But if you want to know Jesus, I pray today is the first time you take this Lord's table in faith. 